everybody. This is Text of the Matter with Misha. And I'm Egon. And uh, today we are finally getting to what feels like a milestone, right? Uh, we're getting to Marks. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Marks. Oh, hey, Johnny. What's up? What's new with you? Well, I'm just sitting up here thinking, you know. Milestone marks. Yeah. <laughs> Milestone yeah. marks. Yeah. And, you know, it's been interesting because we've been working through German idealism. We've done a history of dialectics amongst other pieces of work. But as far as I would say our personal projects go, like of the thinkers that we've tread so far, the closest to our hearts is Marx, right? I would say absolutely. I mean, even when we branch out uh, to more contemporary thinkers, you know, the response is still to Marx. And, you know, this is why we, we went ahead and we did Kant. If you're German, Kant. We did Hegel. Do you think Hegel fucks? Because with a, a lot in Marx, we'll reference Hegel. And so it's sort of useful to have that knowledge before we, we dive into Marx, but Really, we were doing all that so so we could dive into Marx. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we there's a contextualization that happens immediately. Like when a person picks up Marx without the, the these ideas of categories, the ideas uh, about dialectics, about contradiction, etc. Um, some of the the mechanisms with which uh, Marx is functioning are somewhat opaque, right? But um, when you come at it with an understanding of like the grounding of German philosophy, um, the grounding of kind of like the political motivations between and uh, be behind ideal and abstract philosophy, now moving to something that's more concrete and more directly addressing the world in a historical sense, in a kind of practical sense, um, you know, uh, the, the book, both the past books and the book that we're covering, Capital, gain new valences and and more substantial meaning. And then, and and the power of the book, uh, and its value for the contemporary is only emboldened and amplified. So as we start talking about Capital, which is. You know what we're going to be diving into right now it, it's immediate from the go from the jump that marx is using a dialectical formula to analyze and critique both the system of capitalism um, but as well as capital accumulation and and all the rest and having gone through hegel and and the sort of dialectical process helps us understand the kind of historical and logical approach that Marx is taking to these topics. Um, you know, because I, I think as we jump into this, we're going to see, uh, you know, Marx in Capital is funny, right? It's like, it, it's especially when you start the book, it is, it's an economic textbook. It's not... Mm -hmm. It's not a, a manifesto, right? This isn't the Communist Manifesto or some of other Marx's uh, works that have a much more political bent. He, this is 
the culmination of over 10 years of study and study on economic processes on the capitalist system. So from its get-go, from its start, it, it very much has the tenor of an economics manuscript and not a political, it, you know, not what we think of Marx as yes. traditionally, right? Like the philosophy is immediately tied to what he is trying to produce as a scientific analysis of economy, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we see a, an immediate relationship to Hegel, right? They're both approaching this from the idea of science, but the terms of what Marx is considering a science is far more familiar to what we think of in sociology and uh, uh the social sciences in general, those forms of analysis than Hegel, who is arguing that philosophy is science, right? right now, right. clearly Hegel in his approach to the dialectic and his turn on it sees philosophy as something that is necessary to scientific understanding and to understanding human nature, to human values um, and, and social systems. But, um, he he does not he's not as interested in psychology ultimately in these kind of psychological functions and the the minutia of thought itself as he is in more meta processes and social movements um that determine our lives and and determine our behavior and it, both economically and uh and historically ever the good materialist mr yeah. marx um well shoot so shall we jump right into this motherfucker yeah i mean i would like to begin with uh, a couple like quick ideas starting from what i consider a little bit more opaque and then mm -hmm. going mm -hmm. into something more concrete and I, as i Anybody who's followed this, I have gone into some very long quotations, so I'll try to keep them short this time. But um, I think they're important to, for contextualizing a major difference between Hegel and Marx, and also to help us understand really what we're first going to get into, which is labor, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about mm -hmm. labor and talking about the commodity. So um, this is from Henri Lefebvre's, um Dialectical Materialism. He quotes Marx. He says, inasmuch as he is a natural being, man is given, says the manuscript of 1940 or 1844, rather. At the starting point of his production, therefore, we find biological and material nature um, with all its mystery and tragedy. Transformed yet present, this nature will constantly be appearing in the content of human life. So, he begins by talking about this relationship between nature and life and life as this kind of transitory element, right? But Lefebvre was an existentialist and not, I would say, he was a Marxist and an existentialist. And so his concerns were more psychologistic, right? Yeah, much, much more in the Marxist. vein of, um, you know, Sartre or, or, you know, what have you, right? Like yes, absolutely. Um, but writing around the same time you have adorno and adorno writes on a, sim a similar subject in that negative dialectics so he says marx received the thesis of the primacy of practical reason from kant and the german idealists 
and he sharpened it into a challenge to change the world instead of merely interpreting it. He thus underwrote something as arch-bourgeois as the program of an absolute control of nature. What is felt here is the effort to take things unlike the subject and make them like the subject. The real model of the principle of identity, which dialectical materialism disavows as such, right? Mm. So again, nature returns as this major shift in the way that uh, the way that uh, or Adorno defines Marx as going about his thinking differently from Kant and Hegel, right? That this bourgeois in- energy, this bourgeois force, is to define nature and thus universality, the whole of things, um, and control it, dominate it, right? Where, right. where Lefebvre is pointing out this um, immediate element of the way that labor is defined by Marx, right? Mm-hmm. Na- labor as man's nature within uh, this movement from feudalism to capitalism, right? Uh, Adorno puts a... Um, more sharpened point on it that he's defining nature as such universally but he's only doing so understanding that that universality is somewhat false or is almost entirely false is is immediately subject to change and yeah and then oh sorry Uh, uh, well I, i just love that you're you're grappling on immediately and we haven't even really started talking about the book yet but on this expression of change of dynamism right mm-hmm. and 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 that that i think is where marx really utilizes the dialectic in such a way because uh he's much more interested in the relationship between things rather than the things themselves yeah and i think in marx's view looking at the things in themselves is a another way of ossifying or reifying them right yes and and so this is going to be paramount as we start this journey through Marx's capital is that this is about relationships this is about dynamics right and 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 we can't forget that because as soon as we forget that that's when reification occurs that's when you know it it's it stops becoming a critique of a system and just starts becoming a description a description and a statement of like mm-hmm. a thing mm-hmm. in its status as the uh, or as the status quo right yeah, and this and goes status... with your adorno quote right uh, of 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 also then trying to not just describe the world but change it yes and and so i'll, I'll go to this last quote just to kind of contextualize our beginning um and this comes from absolute recoil um uh, which is subtitled Towards a New Foundation of Dialectical Materialism by uh, Slavo Zizek. And he says, however, it is not enough to say this. First, there is a fundamental ambiguity of the Marxist reference to Hegel, which begins already in Marx himself and goes on in Lukács and Adorno. Is the Hegelian doc- dialectical process the mystified idealist expression of the process of liberation? or the mystified idealist expression of capitalist self-reproduction. Second, Marx is not only historicizing universals. He not only analyzes how a universality is always colored by a specific historical context, he also shows how there is a specific epoch in which a universality that is formally valid for all epochs 
appears as such. So I think these three quotes are all driving towards a kind of central point, which is where Marx begins in capital. And you can tell me if you uh, find a different beginning, but uh, I find that the most interesting aspect is the way that he defines labor, mm-hmm. right? And is is trying to show a difference in the way that labor is imagined versus the way that it functions within the capitalist system, right? Because what he begins with is the image of the kind of subsistence worker, right? Or subsistence laborer, like the farmer of... Someone trying to uh, produce for their own consumption. For their own consumption, absolutely. Who takes the land, transforms the land for their own use, right? And this is thought to be kind of like almost reified and when we say reified we mean like it's it's ossified it's stuck it's held in a single single form or idea without possibility of change it's a false uh truth a false reflection of reality but whereas the in capitalism labor becomes something completely different it becomes a value right um and as a value is pulled from the individual the individual that does into a larger process of social economy right so like so karl marx he basically starts off um sort of the idea of capital with this well he begins with the commodity Right. So this is the first step in taking the first step away from naturality. Right. So, you know, the commodity, chapter one. Um, and this is important because what is what is the commodity? And, and we have to remember the book is called Capital. He's talking about capitalism. He's talking about that system. This isn't a study of ancient forms of economy. This is a study of current contemporary to his time in the 18. 18- I guess this would be the late 1850s. He's writing this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a study of of commonplace. And so where do you begin? You begin with the commodity because in whether it's feudal Europe, whether it's ancient Rome, uh, whatever you're analyzing, sure, there are commodities being traded. You know, trade is sort of the history of humanity in a lot of ways. Um, but what he's identifying is this alienation of a product made from itself, right? Yes. And so his first sort of example of this is, um, you know, I guess we'll just get right into it. So uh, when as he's talking about the commodity, he identifies three important things that we have to sort of think of singularly, but also in unity. And that's a thing's use value. Right. So yeah. before something's a commodity, it has a use. Right. You are uh, gardening so you can eat. Uh, so you you and your family can live and you might make a hoe to uh, till that garden. And that hoe has a use value to you. I really should have picked a better example. than a hoe. <laughs> No, it's perfect. Uh, but, you know, all that hoe have use value <laughs> all, all to you all heard it here first. All hoes <laughs> have use values. But that hoe has a use value to you. It helps you grow your plants. It helps you live. It helps you survive. That's a good um, hoe. 
it's a damn fine hoe. But as soon as you start producing hoes to sell to other people so they can then till their garden, um, not that it ceases to have a use value, but it also has an exchange value. So you have a use value, the thing that it's good for. You have an exchange value in what you can get for it. And then um, the third step in this process is its actual value, which is um, in Marx's terms, the, the sort of objectification, the abstraction of what he calls uh, universal socially, what is it? basically universal labor value so it's the the social determined time of labor it takes to make one hoe yes. right and 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 so this is a, a major change and and you are making explicit what i was trying to get at at first which is that you know for a long time objects that people produce were largely thought of in terms of use value right a, a person would live their life in a town and you largely trade things for survival for, uh, you know, most of the peasantry that made up a majority of the populace of the world did not have these extra things, did not have markets where they were going to trade these things in mass, but were rather saying, okay, I have a garden and I can make an extra one and you can go and use that to till your soil or or you know plant your plants and uh you know that will provide you a use value for it and mm -hmm. then it has in a a looser sense an exchange value but this these this order of exchange is very small scale it's very contingent right it's based on two singular needs of people Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that is something that changes when production reaches an industrial scale. When... Right. You're going from a kind of subjective exchange value, right? Where, um, you know, I, I may very much need a hoe, like say I broke mine and I, I need it now. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I'm willing to trade more than it's worth to get it because I need it now. But uh, as society has evolved into this, extensive network of markets and different commodities that are being traded. Um, this is where the the identification of value comes from, right? So, um, you know, in a barter system, there's still an exchange value, I will trade you, uh, you know, 20 yards of linen for, uh, you know, a bag of wheat, a bag of wheat, right, yeah. exactly. And there's, you know, there are of more or less of equal value. But when we get beyond this, when, when the marketplace becomes complex, where it's like, okay, so my 20 yards of linen, maybe you're worth one bag of wheat, but maybe I don't need wheat. Maybe my aim is, uh, you know, a, I guess maybe they wouldn't have coffee, but a bag of coffee, we'll say. And, um, and as this, you know, you start to develop this chain, right? Where like 20 yards of linen equals uh, one bag of wheat or um, half a bag of coffee or um, 10 you know, whatever, Bibles, right? 10 Bibles, whatever Which it Marx is. Marx curiously uses as one of his markers of exchange, the in, Bible, which I found so in the most curious. like glib, funny way. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, I, I love Marx because he's like, you know, and, and we hope that everybody like 
picks up and reads at least some of these books or like maybe not, you know, phenomenology of spirit, but like something, right? It, yeah. You get a tenor and a taste for the person. Hegel, pick up a little con, you know. But Marx I love because he's so um even when he's at his most boring, he's like kind of conversational and yeah. like he is not above making jokes all the time. Like um and sometimes really raunchy ones um yeah so i think he would love this podcast is the point i'm making and you should yeah. you know support us and all that but uh marks <laughs> loves this podcast there you go but you heard it here first um but so when you have this like string of equivalencies right is you sort of have there there, there becomes an, an actual value an objectified an abstract value that marks would say right like Okay, so this uh, 20 yards of linen is worth all these different amounts of different things. Um, and basically what Marx kind of reduces this to is like abstract labor value that it takes a certain amount of energy and effort to produce any one of these things and in more or less and it's never a perfect science but more or less um you know what takes you a day to make you can trade for something else which takes about a day's time to produce yes and 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 what what is happening is these items they are now becoming quantities right and, that, and that's what's important is that we're switching from the qualitative element of the commodity right this very concrete real relationship with the human being to a more quantitative level of a production of a thing and how that thing can operate within a whole community of people, a social community of people who are all themselves laboring to produce on that market, whether they are the person who is creating singularly a violin, right? Or a group of people who are working together to produce a car, right? Like, in all of these things, there congeals, as he says, labor. And as labor congeals, it creates value, value as an abstraction from the thing itself, from the thing as it is simply used. And once that change happens, once we acquire markets in this sense, he is uh, exemplifying that we can no longer think about commodities in the same way, which is the grounds of the critique because he's following thinkers like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These pillars of early capitalism for whom the idea that the value of an object arises wholesale from its, its being like that, the market, its market dictates determine this sort of magical and illusory value that has no grounds um, is, yeah. is, is wrong. And that what it actually is, is that people work and that that work and the effort and the, the process of production that goes into these commodities suddenly gives it a real value that is obscured. Yeah, and I, I think you bring up such a really good point here because it's like, you know, the separation of concrete labor versus abstract labor. And and this is going to be kind of repeated in a lot of different um, topics, not just labor, but 
you know, you have this concept that like my concrete labor, I spent a day building a fence to keep my uh, livestock in, right, is very much different than the cumulative abstract labor, which is how we measure sort of what things are worth. And what, what he means by this is uh, in some ways quite complicated and in some ways quite simple, which is, you know, um, on its face, it sounds like, well, I took um, two days, I took a week to make these shoes, but uh, this other cobbler only took half a week. So mm -hmm. wouldn't my shoes be worth more than his shoes? And Mark says, well, no, it's uh, abstract labor time. It's a socially accepted form of how long it takes to make shoes. And uh, this is important to mention because what's happening is labor is becoming abstracted. It's becoming yeah. abstracted from these specific shoes. It's becoming abstracted from uh, my specific amount of hours worked, but it's become something that um, that is a social relation that socially we are willing to expend this much for a pair of shoes doesn't matter if it took you a week or a half a week we expect it to take you about a half a week's worth of value and sorry oh yes and 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 i was simply going to add to that and that comes to define the nature of exchange because once a person can produce the shoes in half a week's time right expending that amount of labor time and giving it that value that then determines what a, another person can bring to market and what they can ask for right there is what what is seen as like this natural competitive tendency or like these these natural values that kind of pop out of the ether for the capitalist right out of just like the natural quality of the shoes or of the value of the leather is instead something that's produced out of like how does labor get something to market how can it do it cost efficiently how can it do it quickly and and in that regard how then does it uh determine the abstract perception around this concept of a commodity of the shoe itself right yeah exactly and this is why marx is so into technology and one of the interesting things about Marx, because he recognizes right away, like, okay, we developed a new loom. Now it takes half as much time and maybe half as many people to create 20 yards of linen. Well, that affects how much that linen is worth because yes. it takes less time and less people. So for the capitalists, it's much easier to make that linen. So it's, it's not worth as much to someone else, uh, nor is it worth as much to you. And this is just it, it's it's it seems maybe common sense right but it seems like common sense because of Karl Marx yeah I think I think Karl Marx gets a lot of shit from economists when really like a lot of what economists do is still based on oh, yeah on fucking capital um they don't agree with his conclusion but all of uh, every critique that he presented to the way they were thinking about things has just been synthesized into economic parlance so one of the ways in which Marx kind of um, underwrites uh, contemporary economics in a very fascinating way is in his differentiation between uh, relative value and uh, equivalent value, right? Um, 
So we can roughly think of relative value as what we have been talking about, which is this series of relationships that forms within a market, between people, within a community, where uh, various commodities are given exchange value contingently through specific and singular relation. One person change, exchanges the linen for the wheat, for the Bible, and so on. Whereas equivalent value is this more objective thing for him. Equivalent value is when two different commodities have the same amount of congealed labor behind them, right? The idea of the commodity then in within Marx's context loses this sort of mystified element, right? And we'll get into it later more when we talk about fetishism, but this mystified element that the reason why the wheat is worth the same thing as the Bible or as the 20 yards of linen is a product of the qualities of the linen itself, that linen is has this substantially less value, so it's only worth one Bible, when maybe there's a percentage of linen in the Bible itself in its binding or whatever that is grossly overvalued and compared to how cheap the 20 yards of linen are themselves, right? For instance. Um, and so this idea that labor is essential to the... Um, to the management understanding and thinking of how our commodities function is something that's entirely new. And, and that is within even those who reject Marx entirely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's interesting how he traces this too, right? Because uh, he mentions Aristotle and Aristotle has an idea uh both in the Republic, but also the his one of his uh, works on ethics, this idea that um, commodities must be commensurable with one another, right? They mm -hmm. must have some equal footing, otherwise they, they couldn't be traded, right? They couldn't be um, they couldn't be uh, uh, equalized, right? And uh, for Marx, Marx is like, you know, Aristotle was never able to figure out what this mysterious third element is. And Marx deduces that, you know, in Aristotle's time, the Greeks used slave labor for the production of a lot of their goods. And so what he couldn't see is that the commensurability of commodities is the fact that there is labor time invested into them. And that's what makes them things that can be equated with one another. And I think this is like super important to understand that Marx is, and Marx isn't the first one to say that labor time is what makes commodities tradable or um, that they can stand on the same footing. Uh, but he's the first one to suggest that it is the sort of socially acceptable labor time, what this abstract congealed labor time, as he calls it, that that makes commodities commensurable, that in a marketplace, um, you know, outside of barter, what we're exchanging isn't necessarily, uh, you know, wheat for linen, but labor time for labor time that we have that labor time has been invested in these objects. And so therefore, they have an equal 
you know, their lowest common denominator, if you will, is this labor time. And that's why um, things that have nothing in common, say, um, you know, uh, food and, um, you know, tools or something can be traded for one another because they still are reducible to this one common element, which is the fact that labor time has been invested in them. Certainly, certainly. And um, so Marx kind of outlines this process, right? This process of the commodity being exchanged in series, which forms a sort of totality. But he determines that there is necessarily this other element that's required now that value has been abstracted beyond its use value, beyond its exchange value, even be, and in, in rejection in many ways in the capitalist system of its real value, right? And that it, it requires a sort of medium, right? And that, and that comes in the form of coinage, of gold, right? Yeah, and I love this because he, he treads this ground super carefully, right? He initially, when he introduced something like gold or, or a, basically he calls it a commodity whose use value is, the, is to stand in for the exchange of other things, right? Like yes. he makes a, these stupid lists in capital where it's like 20 yards of linen equals one coat equals uh, four gallons of brandy equals one Bible yes. equals, and so, you know, all these things can equal each other. Um, but in order for this to make sense, because maybe you have linen and you don't want a coat, you want uh, a Bible or whatever it is, um, you know, you don't want to have to trade your linen for a coat so you can then trade that for a Bible. There needs to be a third thing, a mysterious third thing that can stand in place. And, and he's very smart to be like, well, that is the use value of something like gold or silver. It can not only does it mean, can it maintain its purity so you can turn it into a coin, but then the quantity of that coin can determine value, right? So, you know, uh, a coin weighing this much or containing this much gold is worth more than a coin that is less heavy or contains less gold. And so it has this use value that matches it as a commodity of exchange. But of course, as time goes on, you have this transformation of gold as a as as a use value as an exchangeable token to one that becomes an expression of value. Yes. And, oh, oh, sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Go know, ahead. I, I was simply going to say, and and though he doesn't outline it entirely in an explicit way, right? There, he's referencing a time where gold, silver precious metals, jewels, etc., are ascribed a value in a, in a very abstract way, largely out of scarcity, but also out of certain functionality, but also out of aesthetics, right? Mm -hmm. Like out of, out of their beauty and um, out, of, out of the kind of things that they're, they're used to produce, right? And, oh, sorry. Well, and, and I would say, I mean, I think that's an important component of it. They're like aesthetic qualities, but really like the use value of a material like gold is that it can be used as coins, right? Yes. Like you couldn't use 
I mean, like, you know, he mentions historically, like different societies have used like shells, for instance, mm -hmm. as a, a coin, as a money, uh, a trading token. Um, but, but whatever it is that you use for that, it actually has a use value in being that like gold can be the token for trade, because it's easily quantifiable. And what's so fascinating about it is that he he very um, in a very detailed and delicate way kind of outlines the shift of the coin mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as like this material object, right? Where the coin is weighed and therefore in relation to the totality, let's say gold, or let's return to this idea of the gold standard, right? Where a state would define its money by the value of gold. Silver is an X percentage, a coin of silver or a weight of silver is X percentage its equivalent weight in gold and the same for uh, bronze and copper and, and so on, right? Um, yeah, to produce all your increasingly smaller values, small, right? Small yeah. increments. And we'll get there later. But at the same time, these things, they have then this sort of concrete material relationship to the sum total of gold because it is this weight. But once it is turned into a coin, right, you could have the coin as a representation because it's not only this material as it weighs, but that gold, it may degrade. It may lose, it flake off. And yeah, and he has this, this wonderful description of just by being in exchange and any coin that's used a lot is going to inevitably lose weight. And when you're dealing with such small weights, losing a little bit of weight matters, where all of a sudden your gold coin isn't worth what it's supposed to worth because the, some of the gold has fallen off. Yes. Yeah, so so you have certain society, certain times in the history of society, um, largely he's looking at like European and Asiatic mm -hmm. society, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, this loss would mean it removes it's removed from circulation but there is a period of time it's kind of interstitial time where it's actual weight it's actual material mm -hmm. um va uh, values it's quantitative values are different from its actual exchange value right so mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. when we when we talk about the exchange of coins and you hear um ron paul talking about our return to the gold standard as a way of like you know simplifying all these complex algorithms that determine markets today right um marx is signaling the impossibility of that because even as even in the time of the gold standard the gold coin had already been abstracted from its material value though the coin is purported to weigh x amount so that it can equal x amount of total gold in circulation for a state it is at the same time less than that or more than that maybe there's a miss a mismade coin or something like that and it is different from its actual exchange value which is entirely representational and abstract yeah and so he he mentions this right where it's like well all of a sudden not only does it become feasible or like conceivable but feasible to use money as a symbol whether that's paper money or coins that um you know he and i and i like this that he uses the sort of uh, sterling pound as an example where like mm -hmm. coins used to have weights attached to them 
their yeah. their their they were their value was expressed in the weight of whatever precious metal was contained inside of them but especially with the onset of capitalism you reach this point where it no longer makes sense to actually print the actual weight that it is representing of gold because you're going to lose value that way, whether that's by the actual exchange and the physical nature of that. Um, but the fact that money at a certain point no longer has to represent the the weight, right, of what it's expressing because, you know, we've all bought in. You know, money yeah. is our standard. We're all using Absolutely. it. So we need it to have a certain stability. And so it actually becomes more useful. And don't confuse this with use value, but like it becomes more useful as a symbol rather than an actual like this is a half ounce of gold. And, you know, in Marx's time, of course, uh, they, there's this talk about localized economies that's really easily, but internationally, you're still melting down your currency to create bullion because you you know yeah this the the universal exchange is still gold or silver or whatever it is at that time um and this obviously changes into our own time but you can see laid in front of it how that could happen and why that would happen right uh, absolutely and 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 he sort of draws in two different ways great expressions of uh how this abstraction works right so on the one hand, he talks about coinage and its denominations, right? Mm -hmm. So the relationship of gold to silver to bronze or whatever, right? So in this um, series of relationships, he says, essentially, the actual relationship of the value of silver or copper or whatever doesn't matter at all, right? It's instead the function of these things to moderate and mediate the velocity, as he calls it, yeah. of exchange, right? So this becomes a very important element. Why do we require this abstracted sim symbol of exchange? Well, that's because, as you said earlier, we can no longer just say, oh, I want to trade this for coke to trade for this to get eventually get to that thing six ways down the series but rather people in this uh, society of massively expanded production and massive expansion of population needs to directly get to the product itself to the commodity itself um, and as such when something is being exchanged more quickly you require something smaller so there becomes this abstraction of sub subcategorization of money as variously smaller values so that the velocity of exchanges of, say, um, small amounts of food compared to the velocity of exchange for um, major industrial machinery or um, uh, agricultural uh, business at, at scale, right? And, and so that's uh, on the one hand, one form of abstraction. And then on the other hand is something that we'll all be more familiar with as the gold standard eventually degraded, which is the development of the bill or of, of cash, of, of paper money, right? The true symbol, right? Of the, you Where know, just like a flag, a right? A symbol, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, it... and, so, and so you got this, the, 
go on. I, I'm interested to hear what you're well, I, I, you know, I mean, because what you're introducing us is this the sort of twofold effect of this, which are both really interesting. And, and one is, you know, you're speaking to the velocity of money. So as we use these tokens, right, there's both a magnitude, how much, which at one point was tied to how much gold reserves or silver reserves you might have had uh, on hand as a state. And um, and its velocity, how much is being traded daily, right? Yeah. So he has this great example of, um, I believe it's a bank in Scotland where, you know, on these sort of random days when taxes are due or rents are due, mm. uh, you know, bankers report literally running out of money and then later in the day, getting it all back. So everyone's yeah. going to the bank, taking out their money, paying whoever they owe, and then they deposit it in the bank yeah. And but but the point of this um, is an interesting one, because, uh, you know, this what what this leads to essentially is what he calls this idea of hoarding that we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but the, the second thing, which I think we should maybe touch upon first, because this goes into the idea of the abstraction of money, the abstraction, the like ultimate abstraction of labor time which is the uh, the fetish element of money specifically. Absolutely. And so what is a fetish, right? Um, and so, you know, he's not using it in the fun way that we use the word now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, originally a fetish is a, was a religious object. And mm -hmm. it was a religious object that we as followers put life into. Mm -hmm. So... I think this goes to like Egyptian Orthodox specifically, but there were like these, these um, materials, these ornaments that had life, right? That they, they had a spiritual life that, you know, and, and through both drug use as well as other certain elements of ritual that in practice would come alive. And they were, they were the representations of God, of, of your, or your, uh, pantheon of gods or whatever it was and Marx starts to identify a similar thing with money through its abstraction mm -hmm. where um not value because right so gold was used as an expression of a way to quantify value so we could make exchange easier but all of a sudden money so not gold coins as value as a, a means of exchange but money as this other thing starts to take on its own value yes right and and so we are giving life to this concept that didn't exist before right and so this leads to ideas of hoarding because money all of a sudden takes on a desire right like in the same way that gold has a desire to it yes right? a, a passion as he he, mm -hmm. he says um and one of the primary functions of fetishism and and the problems in which the way that it's used in this sort of mercantilist economy and early capitalist economism is that it render, renders labor inert right like it, you know, it imagines that value arises out of commodities ready-made. Um, and so for Marx, like to treat the commodity as if the use value 
or the exchange value in isolation, right? Outside of their kind of movement between one another and their process by which they are produced and, and to ignore all of those elements in concert makes it so that we are giving a sort of false life to an idea of what our society and what our economy is instead of being this thing where people are actually working to produce a thing and that work is what gives the thing value it is as if whatever is popular at that moment whatever is useful at that moment um in 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 the community does so because of some innate natural value in itself and he is dispelling that right that these kind of trends are not something that's determinate but are rather determined as hegel would would say yeah it's not an intrinsic quality a physical quality that makes linen worth this much right but it's a socially regulated quality that absolutely makes, and that is socially mediated through labor time but the point being is, is this value is created through a relationship, through a societal relationship between people, between nations, between cultures, whatever, what have you. Um, but, but this is sort of the like most important abstraction of value is it ceases to be something that is innate in the object, but has left the realm of objects. Yes. And, it becomes and, ossified and, as he says, reified mm -hmm, within mm -hmm. a culture and within a society, within a community. Right, exactly. And so, you know, the it's it's just really fascinating because what he's taking us and what he's making us observe, pardon, uh, what he's making us see is that there is yet another abstraction, yet another. Um... So let me bring it back to Kant for a second, right? Like yeah. the way that he talks about subjectivity and objectivity yes. is this idea of the phenomena and the noumena, right? Yes. And that there are things we can know and things we can't know. And this process that Marx is describing is yet another objectification of something to a realm that is that is not that does not exist inside the phenomenal world exactly and this is important in our understanding of marx because this then becomes forces at play upon us that have a questionable validity or a a questionable um, physicality well he's describing how the abstract becomes objectified right yes yes how do, yes how do forces right, as Hegel describes forces, right, in a more, um, let's say, spiritual in the Hegelian mm -hmm. sense, in a way like that, he is actually describing how material objects can come to acquire a sort of collectively held and behavioral force on people through their collective belief about a thing's value, and that that value then can determine society, right? And so it goes into two ways. On the one hand, there is fetish, as he describes it. And then on the other hand, there is circulation, right? Which is this sum totality of 
all of the transactions of commodity to money to commodity and so on ad infinitum that form a real whole in one sense of the sum totality of all exchanges, but at the same time is this opaque surface from which we cannot actually read the meaning and the functions of those exchanges, how they actually gain their value, how they actually gain their their um, uh, value through labor. So Marx, um, he has these specific signifiers, CMC, right? Commodity, commodity money, money commodity. commodity, right? And this could go on forever, right? But what, what he's talking about is the the metamorphoses of and and phases these are two different words that he uses that commodities go through as they are exchanged for now this abstract symbol that is money which then creates an intermediary medium right the circulating medium as he calls it so money is the circulating medium and medium in in a similar way to the way Hegel would use the immediate or the negative, yeah. right? But different in that it is a thing, right? It is both an abstraction and it is a thing. It is not simply a relationship between ideas, right? Um, that is uh, conceptually held, right? It is a uh, new function that industrial and capitalist society has developed to maintain the constant transfer of commodities and money between people so that production continues and that things can uh, constantly be transferred. Wealth can be transferred, objects can be produced, new things can develop. Right. right. And and so, you know, obviously we're we're studying capital, right? We're studying Mark Karl Marx's capital. And this section that we're we're studying right now eventually leads to the idea of capital. So we haven't gotten to what capital is yet or how it functions, but what you see through this process is the urge to which will become capital. And this is the urge to hoard as um, Karl Marx calls it. But what he identifies through this fetishization of money is that money has, like all of these things we've talked about, whether it's use value, whether it's exchange value, whether it's value itself, it has a dual, a duality, right? So it's, it has a unity, but inside of it is a duality. And this is partially where the uh, where dialectical materialism comes from, because he's thinking about all of these relationships dialectically. And one of the main points of this is, so we, we brought up gold and gold kind of becomes the first standard bearer of what is money. Uh, but at a certain point, money just becomes money. It becomes banknotes or coins or however you wanna tabulate this. Um, but be, there becomes a certain point where money it starts off as a commodity, but then is also value. So it, it, it becomes the bearer of exchange value, yet also acquires a value in and of itself in a very kind of contradictory turn. And through this process, 
you have the the capacity to sell a commodity or well to basically sell a commodity without having to create one first and 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 it sounds really weird but if you think about money it makes total sense what are and, you and, and and also he talks about the idea of bringing the the commodity to market as crystallizing and this returns to fetish the value of the commodity so let's say i develop a brand new form of technology the sale of that technology the first sale of that technology crystallizes the value of that technology in a way that now it has been introduced into the market and then becomes part of this series of exchanges, whereas prior it had remained outside of it. Cue pretty American flag with an eagle flying past. Freedom! Uh, but, but, but in all seriousness, that I think is our aim, and, and we appreciate you guys tuning in. Um, this has been Text of the Matter. This is part one of Capital, uh, 3.1, you can call it, of our kind of series of German idealism and bringing us to the, the current day. Um, but thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we have a Patreon if you want to support us. You can find that at textpatreon.com or whatever the fuck it is, just like Text of the Matter. Um, find us on YouTube. Please follow us. A new brand is our channel. And uh, we're also on Twitter and Instagram and sort of on Facebook. Spotify, we're on, we have a Facebook group. Yeah, and if you're not into videos, we all our shit gets posted to Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So um, please listen that way if that's easier for you. And um, hiya on that note. <laughs> Audi, my Marxist babies. Later. Bye-bye.